Hi, and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we're going to try something a little different. So it was very recently Martin Luther King Day, um, and uh, a lot of different quotes were going around about him. Um, and one quote in particular that uh, stands out and that kind of got repeated, especially in there was an idea going around of a lot of interpretations of Martin Luther King were very safe and comforting. And the idea was, you know, Martin Luther King didn't, you know, want us to feel safe and comforted or he was trying to confront us. And so one quote in particular that sort of made the rounds on social media that day was this, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. And this, uh, this quote really struck a chord with me for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons, given that I've been thinking a lot about cognitive bias, obviously, over the past few years, is that it, um, it actually speaks to a particular set of biases. And um, so I wanted to kind of go back and kind of unpack that a bit. Um, and the reason I'm doing that now, as opposed to, you know, in a more timely manner, you know, back when it actually was, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, A is because I really only started thinking about it after the fact, but B, I kind of like the idea of still talking about this after the day has passed. I kind of don't want us to just think about him one day a year and then kind of move on. <laughs> I like the idea that, no, this is something we need to continue to grapple with. Um, in fact, there's even a bias around that called moral licensing, which we've kind of talked about before. It's this idea that if we kind of pay our moral dues, we don't feel the need to keep them up. So it's like, oh, I celebrated Martin Luther King Day. I can go back to being racist. Like, no, it doesn't work that way, really. Um, so I kind of want to keep this conversation alive a little bit. Um, but like I said, part of it is also just there's actually a lot to unpack there. And I had to admit, I had never, in fact, read the source of that quote. The source of that quote is the very famous letter from Bir Birmingham Jail. Um, and so I you know, went back to find like the context for the quote and ended up reading the whole thing, which, um, it's a lengthy letter, but wow, like it's, you know, this may be obvious to some of it, but if you haven't actually read the letter, please go do that. You might even want to do it before you listen to this podcast, but even if you don't like go back after and really read it, it's so relevant and eloquent and, uh, all of the things that there's a reason it's endured as an important American document to this day. But, um, but for a little, um, context, right. And again, this is stuff I didn't even know, cause I didn't really study my own history is I didn't even know who he was writing that letter to. He was writing the letter in response to, um, a letter that had been written by, um, eight white clergymen, um, in, uh, in Alabama in Birmingham, uh, where basically, he had come to Birmingham to uh, conduct nonviolent protests against uh, segregation. And these clergymen were like, you know, they didn't call him out by name. They just sort of referred to outside agitators, but it was clear they were talking about him. But they were basically like, MLK, calm the fuck down. Like, you, you know, you, you don't need to do all this. Just chill out. Everything, everything will work itself out, right? Like, don't, you know, you're, you're, making, you're making it worse. And this, you know, and here he is sitting in jail reading this, you know, in a newspaper that somebody slipped him. And yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine. But this was his measured response <laughs> was this letter. Um, and uh, one quote fairly early on kind of stands out to me um, is this, 
You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. And I couldn't help but immediately think of Colin Kaepernick, right? Or any similar protest where people are like, oh, how dare you, you know, kneel during the anthem. Like they're outraged at that act of defiance. They are not expressing a similar outrage over the um, the acts that inspired that defiance, right? And you'd at least you'd at least like to hear that. You'd at least like to hear it is terrible that cops are shooting black people, <laughs> right? And I disagree with your method of <laughs> you know uh, of of disputing that, uh, perhaps. But if you're going to be outraged about a man kneeling, why not also be outraged about? black people getting shot by cops, right? Like that, that's, that, that the echo of that sort of resonates for me there. And again, it speaks to this very basic bias of, and a lot of these social biases we talked about this season do this. It's a lot about seeing what's in front of you, right? What you're observing someone else do, but not seeing what they're seeing, right? Not seeing any context for what they do, just the act itself and your reaction to it, right? So if I see a person kneel during the national anthem, I have this reaction of, oh, how, um, how dare they, right? How dare they, how dare they be defined in that way without looking at the larger context for it? Like that is a, a normal human, a standard human reaction, right? It takes extra effort to then go beyond that and say, well, why is that happening, right? That person just as I have justifications for the things that I do that someone might look at me and say, well, why are you doing that, right? That person also has justifications. So, and we've looked at this with attribution error, like any number of different episodes this season have talked about versions of this attribution error where it's like you look at someone, you see them do something, and you don't think at all about the context of what they're doing. And there's a lot of this, I feel, and, and I see in this letter where I'm just seeing bias after bias kind of play itself out in terms of the situations he's describing. Um, there's also, and we're going to see this pop up again and again in this letter, uh, a lot of just world hypothesis going on too, right? The world is an orderly place. Everyone gets what they deserve. So why should you be kneeling during that, right? Why should you be protesting? Everything's fine. Um, you see King fight against this. He never calls it the just world hypothesis, but he fights against this so many times in this letter. Um, and... The idea is that this, the, the clergy he's writing to, right, are more interested in order than justice. And this notion, this conflict between order and justice, we're going to kind of keep coming back to it because to me it looks a lot like uh, certainty, the human need for certainty, the human mind's need for certainty, which has been, been a theme for this entire podcast, right? Everything I learn about cognitive bias points back to this need for certainty, no matter what the cost. And here the cost is justice, right? Like the world is an orderly place. The clergy have their place in Alabama and everything's fine. You know, our Negroes were happy till you got here kind of mentality versus justice, which requires them to snap out of that very, you know, um, comfortable place where everything is order and they have certainty. Justice requires uncertainty. That That's that's kind of what they're, they're pushing back against. Um, and... Something that I kind of always knew, but, you know, King is actually very explicit about in this letter, and again, I never really understood how explicit he was about this, is that King was a tactician, right? He was a strategist. He understood why he was doing what he was doing, and he had a method and a process, and it was very political and very well thought out. So it wasn't just, oh, I'm just going to come here and demonstrate because segregation is bad. He picked a time and a place, um, 
and particular political things were going on in, Bur in Birmingham that time that made it opportune. There were certain economic realities that made it an opportune time to, you know, do these protests. And, and the whole methodology is around not just being confrontational for the sake of being confrontational, but being confrontational to create a better negotiating position. His whole thing was he needed to get to a point where he could actually make the legislators and the governors and the, all, all the people in power throughout the South, um, get them to negotiate for better terms for black people, for, you know, actual reasonable human terms for black people, right? Um, he was not trying to force them into this. He knew he couldn't force them into this. He wanted to put them in a position where they would negotiate. And he would always open with open negotiations. He talks in the letter about how he tried to negotiate with the powers that be, and they basically paid lip service to, oh yeah, we'll take down these signs or we'll, you know, um, stop doing these things. And then they either didn't or did, but just for like two minutes and then put the signs back up. Right. Um, the, uh, so he would always try open negotiation first. And if that didn't work, he had to then, you know, resort to nonviolent protests that would then create all this tension that would result in a better negotiating position. It would inspire, right. Those in power to, say they to to uh, negotiate rather than just ignore him um so it wasn't just protesting because it was the right thing to do it was protesting because there was no other way to create a good negotiating um platform um and that tension was his negotiating tactic so there's an, another great quote and some of these quotes are kind of lengthy so bear with me but um but it's his words they're awesome like you know i, I enjoy um <laughs> so here, here's one quote just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood, right? The nonviolent protest was a negotiating tactic, was getting people to a place where they could negotiate. And that tension, right, that he's talking about is the opposite of cognitive bias, right? He's talking about lifting people up out of this racism, out of this, you know, go-to, you know, knee-jerk reaction to things to actually heighten themselves, right? Um, and to me, when I read that quote, like, I was thinking very much about this notion of what, you know, Daniel Kahneman refers to as system one and system two thinking, right? There's that knee-jerk, you know, gut reaction thinking versus the well-thought-out process thinking, right? And he was trying to get them to the place of really thinking through those decisions and pulling them out of, you know, basic cognitive bias. And it's, it's a place that questions, that questions order, right? It doesn't just assume, you know, status quo is fine, and it's okay to go along with these things um, because they give me certainty and says, oh, wait, where is that certainty coming from? I need to question that. I need to actually think about justice, right? Justice requires thought. It requires that system two thinking that, that's, you know, it, it, it's not going to, you're not going to get justice out of, um, cognitive, out of cognitive bias, out of, you know, system one thinking, um, out of knee-jerk reactions. You need to think about uncertainty, <laughs> things that take you out of your, your, your comfort zone. Uh, he wasn't trying to just impose his will. He was trying to create dialogue. And in creating dialogue requires getting out of that, that cognitive bias place um, that so many people were in. Um, and again, uh, another quote, uh, Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Right? Um, why? In part because power is great. Who doesn't want power? But it isn't just 
that, I feel like there's also just a level of certainty in power, certainty in just the status quo itself. We've talked about the status quo bias before here, right? That um, part of the reason it's so hard to give up power is because power gives you certainty. You know what's going to happen. You know what to expect, right? It isn't just the comfort part of it. It's the it's the certainty that we crave, and letting go of that can be even maybe even scarier than the comforts of power. Um, another quote he has in regards to that is that individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more in, immoral than individuals. Now that quote really hit home, and I don't even have time, I don't even have the, the facility to really unpack that statement. Groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We've talked a little bit about herd instinct, and I can see that coming into play here, where if you see one person do something, two people do something, three people do something, you start to think that it's something you should also be doing, right? Um, that restaurant that's more crowded, you're going to go in there, not in the one that only has two customers. So, and you can start to see how immoral behavior can kind of get momentum in an environment like that. Oh, five people are doing the bad thing, only one person's doing the good thing. Maybe I should be doing the bad thing, and maybe it isn't so bad if five people are doing it, right? You can see how the momentum behind that makes it harder, makes it easier for groups to be immoral over individuals to be immoral. Um, I can't quite unpack all of that now, but it's powerful. Like, I, I'm, this is probably going to be a pretty long episode, and I'm probably going to be like, you know, pulling out a lot of threads here. And trust me, I if I actually tried to unpack the whole damn letter, it would be a semester-long course. It's incredible. Anyway, um, so uh, so here so, so here's another quote here, and 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 what I want to get into here is, you know, mindful of these cognitive biases. Um, King sort of t walks through a step-by-step -step process that they would go through anytime they would come into a town like Birmingham and you know, intervene, right? First, it would be about assessing, is there actually injustice here? Second, it would be about assessing, okay, can we just negotiate, you know, directly? Will that, will that work? And if not, okay, now we have to go through a step he calls spiritual purification. And what he has to say of that is, um, mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail, right? And I feel like our own, you know, self-purification these days or it has to do with this notion of confronting our own biases, right? Like if we are going to fight the good fight, um, even if fighting the good fight just means pulling ourselves out of, you know, the, the mindsets that are our defaults, that are just, you know, the non-thinking you know, version of things, I feel like that is that mo moment where you're like, okay, what am I actually going to make an effort to be thoughtful about, to think through what, what, what are the biases that I already have that are, I'm, I'm acting without even realizing it and being very knee jerk about and what, and, and what am I willing to do about that? Right. Where, where are the points in our own lives where we prefer order to justice, right? Where that certainty gives us a comfort and makes us say, okay, I would rather have certainty than go into this uncomfortable, uncertain place that might actually lead to justice for people who aren't me. Um, and then determine again, honestly, what are we willing to do about it? If we're not happy with that, if we're, if we, if we're upset about the fact that we're, you know, preferring certainty for ourselves over justice for others, what are we willing to do about that? And again, honestly, are we willing to go to jail? Are we willing to, um, be, you know, uh, hurt without uh, retaliating, right? We might not. <laughs> we might have to pick some other way of resisting. But I, I feel like that honest assessment, that I think I think that, that self-purification is a thing that still exists and is needful today. And then we have to then do that thing. Whatever that thing we decide is that we are willing to do about that, um, 
that certainty that we're not happy about and moving into that uncertainty, what, what are we willing to do about that? Uh, and then actually doing it. Um, and that's a challenge for my, myself as well. And to me, part of it is I've, I've, I've increasingly come to the conclusion that while we can't fight bias in like a conventional sense of like the same way you can like cure a cold or, you know, um, you know, fix a, you know, drainy, you know, pipe or something. It's like, it's, it's done. It's fixed. We're never gonna have to worry about that again. You know, our biases are, you know, um, hijacking a, a mental process that we require just heuristics, mental shortcuts. We need those to survive and get through the day. Um, but we also have a certain reserve of, you know, system two thinking, like we have a certain amount of thoughtful things that we can do. And we know this because we are thoughtful about lots of things, the things we care about, right? If we're a fan of a particular thing, we can talk about, we can talk about it in great detail in a way that isn't knee jerk, that really can unpack. We have, we have the ability to analyze things carefully and make decisions thoughtfully and carefully. Some decisions in life we will do that with. You know, someone who knows a lot about cars is going to be very thoughtful about that decision about cars. Um, if they don't care much about food, they'll just order whatever they feel like, right? Like we have places where we decide to spend that mental energy, but it runs out. It's finite, right? We will, you know, in a given day, we will run out of fucks to give, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, so we have to decide very carefully where we will give those fucks. And I feel like, um, moral energy is a, is a place to make those kinds of decisions, right? Are we going to be comfortable with just not being thoughtful about race or gender, how we treat the people in our lives in a given day, right? But be very thoughtful about, you know, ordering exactly the right kind of latte when we go to a coffee shop, right? Like that's, we're going to have to spend it somewhere. Where are we going to spend it? And that, to me, that's part of that like self-purification thing is making those decisions about where are we willing to um, spend our careful thought because it's finite. In any given day, it is finite. Where are we going to be thoughtful? Um, and what are we going to let be the defaults, right? Where are we willing to focus our moral energy and, 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 um, and, and use up our decision fatigue? Um, which is a whole other concept to, I think we've talked about before of just, you're only able to be really thoughtful about a finite number of decisions in a day. Let's say it's 10, 10 thoughtful decisions in a day. Which one are you going to choose, right? <laughs> um, what only so much of our thinking is going to actually be able to be unbiased in a given day. What, where, where are we going to spend that thinking? Right. And is it going to be on things that are important, like race, like the kinds of fights King is talking about here. Um, so with all of that in mind, I kind of want to come back to that quote about, um, the, the greatest stumbling block being, you know, uh, white moderates more devoted to order than justice. So that quote is part of a larger sentence that I feel is worth reading. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice. And he says order like, you know, in it's in quotes, order, um, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Right? And the quote I really want to zero in on there, the piece of that, is 
who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. And again, it comes back to that notion of you can have this false sense of order um, that is tension-free, right? You can be comfortable. You can have certainty. But it as if it's at the cost of someone else's justice, then it's not worth it, right? You need that tension, actually. That tension is a good thing because it means that you're getting closer to justice for someone else. And again, this comes back to the status quo bias we've talked about before, where you kind of prefer the devil you know, even if it is a devil. Um, it's very hard to break out of that. Um, and another quote he follows up pretty quickly there is, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Right? And I feel like that's very much where we are right now with race relations and maybe even more so with gender relations. You have a lot of people who feel like these days they have to walk on eggshells. Walking on eggshells um, because they, they're very worried about how they will be perceived, right? And they have difficulty understanding a world where everyone kind of has the same opportunities so why should anyone be complaining, whether they're black, whether they're female, whoever they are? And, um, and that's the shallow understanding, right? It's this notion of, I get you're upset, but I don't really get why you're upset, right? Um, and I have goodwill, and I want you to not be upset, but really, isn't everything okay? Like, it's that, it's the same kind of, like, understanding of race relations that says, I don't see color. Well, if you don't see color, you don't see me, right? To paraphrase uh, the hate you give, right? Um... So I think that's that's kind of what he's getting at. And I feel like that still comes back to um, this notion of being able to see what's in front of you and see a person's behavior and kind of attribute that to whatever you want, but not really being able to understand their context because context is hard, right? That's that's Context is deep. Just seeing what people do is shallow. Um so what, what, what King refers to here is he says, actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive, right? So these clergymen are writing to King saying, hey, look, you're messing it up. You're, you're causing all this violence, all this tension. Why are you doing that? Um, and he's not, no, he's saying, I'm not creating the tension. The tension was already there. We're just laying it bare for all to see, Right. And that's it. Like, at the end of the day, that's it. Unconscious bias is unconscious. You can't see it by its very nature. Someone has to lay it bare. It must be brought to the surface where it can be seen and dealt with. That's the, the quote he uses for that tension. Um, that's why his work was so important, right, in so many ways. He was playing psychologist to the nation. The nation was like a human who had all this unconscious bias buried beneath the surface, all this tension that it was just hiding and pushing down. And when you do that, of course bad things happen. You can think of an individual who pushes all these bad things down, right, this dark past, and eventually it comes back to the surface anyway. He was trying to bring it to the surface in the healthiest possible way, but it was going to have to come out. And he says, you know, again, riffing on this notion that the clergy were basically accusing him of creating the violence, or at least creating a situation that caused the violence. He says, in your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. 
but is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? All right, that is some straight up just world hypothesis shit right there, right? Like that is just, oh, you deserved to be raped because you were wearing a short skirt. Like that's the kind of logic, quote unquote, right, that he's accusing these people of, of giving him. Um, when trying to, you know, act in, in, in the interest of civil rights. And he says, I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency, made up in part of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodiness that they have adjusted to segregation and in part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. Now, time will not allow for me to get into the whole notion of, oh my God, some black people were actually profiting from segregation at the time. We don't talk about that. So that'll be a whole other thing, right? But the part I want to, that both of these groups have in common that I kind of want to talk about is this notion of adjusting to segregation, right? Again, there was a certainty in that. We're, we're not going to go into it in this podcast. We have a podcast coming up where we're going to talk about system justification, but it is very much around this idea of even oppressed peoples can adjust to that oppression to the point where that oppression gives them certainty, Right? which is a horrible situation to be in, but to be certain that you were going to be beaten, to be certain that you were going to be oppressed, right, is still certainty, right? It's still better than chaos. It's part of the reason, you see, dictators come to power, right? Putin comes to power in Russia at a time when Russia is in absolute chaos. Pick any dictator, actually. They come to power in a time when their country is in absolute chaos, and people will yearn for a strong man to tell them what to do, to give them certainty, even if that certainty is you are not going to be very happy at all. I mean, they'll promise happiness, but um, uh, the people I'm going to vilify aren't going to be very happy at all. Um, but that certainty, people are willing to exchange certain freedoms for that certainty. And this is a similar situation. And then, of course... The middle class, middle class Negroes he's referring to here, their certainty is coming from their status, right? They don't want to give that up. Um, the, other, the other group, though, that, he's, that he refers to, so he says there's a group of sort of Negroes who are complacent with the situation, but there are also groups who are kind of on the other end of the spectrum. He's referring to the black Muslims at the time who were advocating for, you know, um, violent revolution, basically. Um, and... They had, in his in his opinion, they had given up on America, on, on America being able to get its act together. That that it, it had any hope that there was and, and that there was ever going to be any place for black people in America. They they had just given up on that completely, which is its own kind of certainty, you know. And I've had my dark nights of the soul where I've looked at the stuff that's gone on and been like, you know, can America ever find itself? Like this 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 the things that that we have done and continue to do are so terrible, right? Should we just throw away, you know, the key? Like, should we just say, you know what, the whole thing is, is horrible and can never be resolved? And I think the weird comfort of a thought like that is it allows you to just give up completely. And giving up completely is also a form of certainty because now you don't have to try to fix it. You can just abandon it. There's uncertainty in trying to fix something and trying to make America a better place to live for everyone because you don't know if it's going to work. 
Or, more to the point, you don't know the degree to which it's going to work, or the degree to which it'll work for the next four years, but when someone come else comes in office, it'll actually go back a little, right? There is so much uncertainty in that, and there is so much certainty in saying, you know what, it'll never be good. It's always been terrible, and it is always going to be terrible. Like, that's the flip, you know, side of certainty of saying, oh, what are you talking about? America's always been great, and it always will be great, right? Like, both are this false sense of certainty when the truth is the only reality is in that uncertainty, um, but what's, what's interesting about this is, you know, MLK kind of comes to a close here talking about this notion of extremism because he's being accused of being an extremist and he talks about how at first he finds that, you know, uncomfortable, then he starts to embrace it because he starts to look at the people he's idolized, you know, his own namesake, Martin Luther, right? Was, he says, was not Martin Luther an extremist? And he quotes Martin Luther, um, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God, Right. For the people he's talking about, and I think he is included in this, these are people who their status quo is to resist, is to embrace that uncertainty, is to reveal that tension. Like they've practiced that muscle enough where that is their default. It takes less effort for them over time to do that than to, it would actually be more effortful for them, I imagine, to become complacent. I, th I think it would be very, very hard for MLK to just sit back. After a certain point, I think he got to the point where it, it would have been his, his knee-jerk reaction is to resist, is to, um, to reveal that tension. Um, th th that's his identity. And the people he talks about, he sort of talks about, you know, Martin Luther and, and, and other folks, like, who, who've also sort of come to this, you know, conclusion. That's their identity, Right. And our identities are our status quos, right? Our certainty comes from our identity. There are so many different biases that, at the end of the day, tie our certainty to our identity. We've talked about this with in-group, out-group bias, right? Um, I think we've talked before about like the, um, the way that we think about our politics like identity, that if you... Um, hook someone up to an fMRI and you basically confront them with, oh, the politician you love, they did this, they did that, and, you know... Um, you know, talk shit about their, their politician, the part of their brain that lights up is the part that has to do with identity, right? That you are not attacking Trump, you are attacking me. You are not attacking Hillary, you are attacking me, right? That's the, that, that gets you right into fight or flight. That's why people get so emotional about politics. It's not because they care so much about politics, they care about themselves. You are attacking them. For these people, their identity, their certainty was this you know, world where they felt the need to reveal those tensions in our country um, and do something about them, that, that they actually, you know, arced, their status quo kind of arced toward justice instead of this notion of order. Um, and I feel like that's, for us, you know, the challenge that lays before us is, well, what are we, what is going to be our identity? What are going to be our defaults, our status quos? Because that is going to define us. That's, that's going to be who we are right? And he says it. He says, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be, right? He's saying, look, you're going to be an extremist no matter what. It's just a question of what side of history you're going to land on in that extremism, right? So choose your defaults carefully. And collectively, that's going to determine what America's defaults are going to be. And those have shifted, I think, over time, generally more progressive, but they always shift back Right? Maybe not all the way, but somewhat. Um, but I think that's coming from each individual American's defaults, you know, landing in different places over time. Uh, and I feel like, you know, America must find itself or lose itself.
and 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 each one of us has a role to play in that. Um, another thing I want to think I want I want to point out is that while you know King confronts you know white moderates, he is also willing to call out, you know, takes pains to call out, um, but you know what we call positive outliers too, right? So he says, I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers in the South have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are all. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some such as Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, James McBride Dabbs, Anne Braden, and Sarah Patton Boyle have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Now, this is important, not just to sort of, you know, be a king apologist or soften the blow of, oh, he said that really, you know, mean thing about white moderates. It's like, no. It's that he understood the value of calling out, you know, white exceptionalism, right? Of of calling out folks who um, were doing it right, and it's important, you know, not just give credit where credit is due, but it's also important because if we can't see ourselves, if we can't see the thing that we are supposed to be, we can never be it, right? If he just goes around saying white people are terrible, that's all he's giving white people to be. But if he says okay, these white people over here are terrible, but look at these white people. Look at the amazing things they're doing. He's at least pointing out an exemplar. Whether you agree with it or not, he's pointing to an exemplar to be like, oh, if I want to be like king, I should be like these people. Like, if I want to relate to, if I want to be of service here, well, here's an example I can follow, right? If he gives them no example to follow and doesn't call them out by name to make it really concrete, um, he's doing them a disservice and he's doing the cause a disservice because the cause needs allies. Um... But then again, but that again, that is basic pattern recognition, right? That's a thing where if we can't see it, we can't emulate it. Um, so I would say, you know, if it is even possible to bring this, you know, long ramble to some kind of, you know, conclusion, find your defaults. Find the thing that you want to be your default, right? Understand what your defaults currently are, what your biases currently are. If you're happy with them and you think they're being of service and helping out, you know, and arcing toward justice, great. Keep that up. If, however, you think, hey, you know what? Some of my defaults are actually hurtful. Figure out what you want your defaults to be and work toward that because that will become your identity. And I think that there's a commonality between our defaults and the things that we truly love, right? Uh, It could be, you know, your Doctor Who fandom, (laughs) right? I'm a big Doctor Who fan, right? Or, or, or I love going out and giving talks, or, you know, I love my, my, my kid and my wife. But, but the things that you love, the things that you are passionate about, find those and use them to somehow help people, right? Because that's going to be the easiest way for you to help people. It's going to be the, it's going to be the most, it's your default. It's, it's your form of extremism that's, that's based in love. I feel like that's important because it is very hard to completely upend a cognitive bias. So if you do have useful defaults, oh my god, you should leverage them <laughs> cuz it's going to you're going to have a hard time undoing the ones that are harmful and you should undo them. But in the meantime, lean on those good defaults because that's going to be the the easiest way for you to be of service and probably the most service you'll be able to add to the world cuz those are yours. Those are your own. Nobody else has those defaults, not the way you do. So find the thing that you love and use it to help people. And I'm going to close with one like just a little mini quote that actually happens pretty early on, but kind of stuck with me. King kind of understood the interconnectedness of things. 
Um, and it's, again, it's part of the reason he says I couldn't just sit in Georgia and try to fight for desegregation there. I had to go all through the South. And he says that we're all part of the single garment of destiny. He understood that what one person did affected other people, affected other people, affected other people. So the reason I'm talking about cognitive bias and I'm talking about your defaults and my defaults and being careful about them is because our defaults affect other people, right? Our love affects other people, affects other people. We're all in this together. And as much as we might hate each other right now, in the words of Father John Misty, we're all we've got. Uh, so thank you all so much for bearing with me as I try to work through <laughs> this amazing document in terms of cognitive bias. Um, and I hope you found it valuable. Uh, for this week, that is all for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Tom Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time. 